Welcome to Engineering Stories, a podcast presented and produced by Silver Fox and the Institute of Engineering Technology. This week's guest is Mark Gowdy, a chartered engineer who currently works at SP Energy Networks as a distribution system operations manager. Mark discusses his commitment to the net zero goal, as well as being actively involved in encouraging young students and apprentices with an interest in engineering. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hi, I'm Alex and welcome to Engineering Stories. I am the Head of Research and Development at Silver Fox. I not so long ago graduated from Bath uh, in Electronic and Electrical Engineering. Today I have with me my co-host Connor and Mark Gowdy. Connor, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Connor Maringolo and I'm an electronics and communications graduate student and I am going to be a part of Airbus Defence and Space in September working as a robotic systems engineer. Great. And Mark, what about you? Yep. Um, hello, I'm Mark Gowdy and I'm the distribution system operation manager for SP Energy Networks. So Mark, I think the first question really is what do you actually uh, do where you are currently? Like, um, is there anything as well that you feel that the audience would like to listen to and find interesting? Yeah, sure. So as the distribution system operation manager, my job is essentially to look at what does the future of our electrical infrastructure look like and how do we more actively manage and control um, the day-to-day -day infrastructure to enable our journey towards net zero. So how do we get millions of electric vehicles connected onto the electrical system? How do we decarbonize millions of properties that are going to switch from using traditional gas boilers to heat pumps um, over the next over our journey towards 2050? Um, so my job day to day is looking at um, everything from more complex hardware on the physical infrastructure through to software and data driven solutions that allow us to um, supply and uh, generation and demand and balance them in different ways uh, to allow us to do a lot more uh, with the infrastructure that we already have. That's really interesting. My dissertation was actually looking at load profiles of of um, smart meters and at trying to work out whether they had electric cars charging there or not. For, for just for the um, if anyone's just joining this episode specifically, uh, we have talked about net zero before. But could you explain to the audience what that actually means for a company or just in general what that would mean? Sure. It's um, our legislated target to reduce our carbon emissions. And the target that we've set is by 2050 to reduce 100% of our equivalent emissions based on 1990 levels. Um, so essentially, we either um, offset or remove carbon from our day-to-day -day processes. And the big focus for that is predominantly energy. So things like the energy that we use for transport, the energy that we use for um, the generation of electricity and uh, the um, fuel that we use for um, heat. So all those kind of industrial processes and things together. So, um, you know, ultimately save the planet. If we all get to net, uh, net zero by 2050, then we'll keep the global temperature rise below two degrees. Um, if we don't, then there's a real risk around long-term damage to our habitats and our environment, and we could ultimately lead to, you know, uh, a spiralling uh, environmental disaster. Just to finish on a high note. Yeah. On that, uh, <laughs> do Do you think yeah. it's a reasonable target? Do you think 2050 is a a realistic? I think you. I think it is. A, you need a tight target to ultimately drive people towards. I mean. Um, 
you know, Alex, you're not that long at a university. I'm not that long at a university. You, Connor, you've literally just finished. Is that there's nothing motivating like a tight deadline. Yeah. And I think it's the same for like countries is that we need to set these tough targets to actually motivate us and to kind of spur us into action. The thing that people need to remember is that ultimately we share one atmosphere. Is that this is a global effort, not just here in the UK. And when you discuss that with people who are like, well, do we need to be moving as quickly? And we're like, yeah, we do because if we come up with solutions, if we figure out cheaper or more effective ways of decarbonizing, then that will help the countries that follow us ultimately on that same journey because it's one global effort to net zero, not just any one country. So yes, I think it's a good thing having that those goals and targets to work towards and hopefully spurs um, you know individual companies to reduce their carbon emissions and also society in general. So um, my question for you then would be, is this what, motivated you to go into engineering or was this a happy coincidence that you managed to get into the field that you're in good question i don't think net zero was really talked about when i was starting going into engineering i think it was like um you know wind turbines were plastered on every uh, kind of university prospectus uh, on the hope that everyone was going to go and work in renewables but um for me um i originally so i was originally meant to be a lawyer engineering wasn't in my cards when i was in school and I only get like mild regret every time I watch Suits and I think that the glass is greener <laughs> on the other side. But, um, Just them like swimming but, in money. <laughs> exactly. I could totally be a kind of ginger Scottish Harvey Spectre. Like, yeah. um, but looking back at the time, like we had this program called the Year in Industry and they came in and they thought, right, do you want to delay university for a year? Do you want to get paid? Come out with a couple of qualifications, a business and a maths qualification and get some industry experience. And I was like, yes. You know, at that point, that sounded great. So I went away and worked in the UK nuclear industry for 12 months, working in the nuclear power stations up and down the country. And that was a, a maturing experience. I think I was the youngest person in the office by about 15 years. And what that allowed me to do was actually go, do you know what? Yep, engineering is something that I want to do. So I cancelled all my university places and I reapplied to one course at um, the University of Strathclyde and did um, electrical and mechanical engineering for five years and I think at that point is you realize that engineering can have quite a big impact on everyone yeah and I think for me the attraction of it was solving real world problems but also having a real world impact and you a lot of people underestimate just like small projects or small initiatives can genuinely be life-changing for millions of people so that's kind of what draw me in and the money was pretty good I was promised <laughs> but that was the kind of cherry on top why did you choose electrical and mechanical engineering? Was it to stay general or was it you couldn't decide? It was, I ended up, I was lucky enough to kind of do rotations around different engineering teams because at that time I hadn't really made up my mind on what engineering discipline was best suited to me. And um, so I found that there was a lot of overlap between the electrical and mechanical disciplines, not necessarily in terms of first principles, like very different in terms of the approach that you take. Um, but when you actually go and look at equipment, when you go and look at plant, then the two are almost always overlapped um, in terms of the considerations. Mm. So for me, it kind of felt like a good niche that there is having knowledge of both these systems would be something that would be really useful um, going um, into my career. Civil engineering tempted me for about like five or 10 minutes. Um, and then I kind of lot, uh, I was like, no, look at this big electrical mechanical plant rather than kind of hitting a bit of concrete with a hammer, wondering what was going to happen next. <laughs> 
and that is not meant to be a disservice. Civil engineering is really complex. Uh, it just wasn't for me at that point in time. <laughs> in the uh, topic of your career at Atkins, um, would you be able to talk to us and the audience about what you think the most influential project or anything that you feel really standed out when um, while you were working there? I think the, the most influential project that um, I've worked on um, I think probably by manifest impact was increasing the production from a North, North Sea oil and gas platform. I think the one that was the coolest to get involved with was definitely the Olympic Games. And I got into trouble in the Olympic Park a couple of times, and I'll get into that in a second. But <laughs> the, um, you know, looking at, um, you talk about like hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil produced per day, and it feeds, you know, the UK petrochemical industry, the, the, from the clothes that we wear to the goods that we use that plastic industry is kind of driven by oil and gas and it was really interesting to kind of get more life and to extend the life of some of these platforms in the north sea so i think in terms of like manifest impact that was something that's kind of as a young age was something that really stood with me um, in terms of the olympic games i was just like um you know a kid in a toy shop um we get the run of the park and you know, it's one of these things where you have to sign some very official looking things that I can't really mention in public domains uh, to allow you to work on these projects. And then as soon as you're in, you're kind of like, oh, Usain Bolt kind of like stood there and someone else picked up their gold medal. And yeah, it was just great fun. The bit I did get into trouble with was I may or may not have been sat in the Royal Box accidentally after kind of doing a tour. <laughs> uh, but Was anyone there? It, it was the queen was really next like <laughs> yeah what happened next is really between me and hr but we'll kind of take it from <laughs> no it was um an umpire kind of did spot me and kind of um started running towards me kind of shouting but not really hearing what he said until i realized as he got closer and closer kind of going you're in her seat you're <laughs> in her seat and then i realized that yeah after exiting the presidential suite had um, taken a wee seat in the royal box because i thought it was a great photo opportunity but definitely haven't made that mistake again. Have you been given the opportunity to make it again? <laughs> no, that, and that's beside the point, but it's definitely <laughs> not. It was a very comfy seat and the carpet was very plush. You kind of sunk into it, which was very enjoyable. So the thing that was interesting was even though the view in the seat was good, you actually, regardless of where you were in the stadium, they kind of designed it so that everyone got a superb view really? of the stadium floor. So even though that was like the best seats in the house, if you'd actually just went one stand over, you would get just as good a view mm. in the seats of the stadium. And it was that idea just to try and make the experience the best for everyone um, that was in the stadium. But um, I try to think what else we actually got to do. Got to go behind the scenes. So there is a run. There was a running track right underneath the seats. So like when anyone came out to kind of set the world records, potentially they were actually warming up underneath the stadium mm. crowd before they Crazy. then go through into the tunnel. But one of the things that they did that was really nice just before the stadium because. Some people had been working on the stadium and the projects for years, but they actually timed them doing a run, so all the different members of staff, and then they drew a starting line on the track, and they all started at a different position, but they all crossed the finish line at the same, time. The same point yeah. just before they finished and closed up the park from the Olympic Games. So it was, nice. uh, it was a nice little uh, ending. <laughs> Never made it into that video. I was back in uni at that point, so that was... <laughs> So um, moving on to your um, your current career, which you started last year, um, 
can you tell us and the audience what it, uh, what the company is and what you're doing there and what they do as a company? Yep, sure. So um, I moved from Atkins, which is um, like one of the UK's biggest engineering consultancies. So they specialize in people and they provide services. So whether it's design, assurance, project management, those types of activities. And I moved to SP Energy Networks, who are a, a electrical utility. So they manage the transmission and distribution assets uh, for Central Scotland. And they also manage the distribution assets for Cheshire, Shropshire, um, kind of the Liverpool city region, kind of Merseyside and Northern Wales. Um, so if you live in those areas and you, uh, they're essentially the ones who get the electricity to your house. So not to be confused with the people that you have your bill with in terms of who you buy your gas and electricity from. Uh, these are the people that are responsible for the electrical infrastructure and getting it into your home. So if you have a blackout, mm. they're the ones that you call. Okay. And through your career, you've you've won a considerable amount of like awards. Is there any that you would uh, like to, I don't know, boast about or <laughs> anything? Because this is for you, isn't it? So is there yeah. anything that you're proud of um, or most proud of even in terms of your awards that you've won? So this is the one time that you get told, like, stop being humble. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just go for it. Go for it. We can put um, music so on think... in the background. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> if we can just do a fanfare as we run up to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, I think the awards that's probably meant the most to me personally um, was the Paul Fletcher Award that I got from the IET. And that was in recognition of kind of all the volunteering work that I did. And it was, you know, it's, it's a legacy. So it kind of honoured the life of uh, Paul Fletcher himself. So it had a, and it was given uh, by his son. So it's a, you know it's got a lot of personal connection to that. So that was something that was really quite meaningful. Mm. The one that's probably had the biggest impact on me um, was when I was in my final year of university. I was like, what else could I do that would really kind of help make me stand out from the crowd? So I started looking at different uh, kind of programs, whether it be kind of leadership development. And I ended up entering the Telegraph STEM Awards in 2015 with an idea to repurpose oil and gas reservoirs uh, to essentially be giant batteries for um, excess renewable energy. And I put this into this uh, kind of Telegraph STEM Awards competition, didn't really think anything else of it. Mm. And I ended up winning the energy category for it and then went up to the kind of the grand final down in London and um you know got the chance to present to the you know the ceo of babcock the editor-in-chief of the telegraph and rachel riley so that was the kind of the your panel yeah um and that award really changed my career because it allowed me to, it, when i joined i was already joining atkins as a graduate but what after winning that award and kind of getting that recognition for innovation and being able to think outside the box has immediately helped one of the directors uh, start up an incubator unit that just looked at future technologies, future needs, um, and how we could bring that to market ahead of our clients realizing that they needed it. So for the award that's probably had the most lasting impact, definitely the Telegraph STEM Awards. Paul Fletcher is definitely the one that's kind of meant the most in terms of the kind of the emotional side of it. Mm -hmm. The one that's got the best title is probably the Visit Scotland Young Legend. Which, depending on where you are in the country and who says it, young legend can be a really big compliment or really quite sarcastic, depending, <laughs> on, how, depending on how it's said. But um, the Visit Scotland ran a legends program to try and bring inward investment into Scotland to attract 
different high tech companies, whether it be in the kind of biomedical sphere, technology, uh, kind of software. Um, and one of the that legends campaign was really successful. And part of that, they wanted kind of young role models for entrepreneurship for the different activities that you've taken in the different sectors. So um, for a period of time, I was the young legend for the energy sector to try and attract uh, more people into Scotland and thankfully have uh, you know a good face for podcasts, as my mum would say. So it's the thank, uh, thankfully the campaign uh, seemed to go quite well. So um, it was an interesting accolade to have, but uh, definitely the most amusing title. I can see from my notes something about a Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering Ambassador. Do you want to yeah. tell us a bit about that? Yes, yeah, so it's um, there's a big, I'm, I'm a big believer that you need to kind of give back. So if you've been lucky in life or if you've had good opportunities or if you've had access to opportunities and you've kind of got a bit of a duty of care to make sure that those opportunities are passed on and others get similar um, access. So um, ambassador work, whether you're a STEM ambassador, promoting engineering, doing outreach work and um, mentoring, uh, people who are going through their careers um, is something that I spend a lot of time doing. One part of that is the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. So there is no Nobel Prize for Engineering. I'm not bitter in any way, shape or form, I think. Uh, but there is the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, which is a, you know, it's a substantial prize that's given every two years. Uh, you know, it's like the inventors of the internet, some of the like leading um, developers of cancer treatments, the inventors of GPS. So like some of the parties that have received the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, you know, they've really changed uh, the, the way that um, the world works. And they've got an ambassador program, which is just to help promote it, uh, encourage it, do activities with uh, kind of school kids and different uh, groups um, to uh, kind of, you know, encourage essentially the next generation. So it's tied to that award program, but very much kind of um, grounded in working with um you know, students and teachers and really just trying to showcase um, what engineering can provide. My second royal encounter that was involved was um, I got an encounter with uh, Prince Charles. We're doing an event at um, uh, Dumfries House and His Royal Highness kind of dropped in as you do, like we're working with all these students and you kind of get this, um, suddenly there's all these news crews and things and you're kind of, uh, you're trying to keep the kids focused on their activity and you fail. Like miserably as someone just really important came into the room and they introduced me that oh this is mark uh, from atkins and you know he's taking the kids through an exercise to try and design a habitat on mars so i was trying to get the kids to think about what was important on earth by what you would have to plan for if you were to leave the planet so things like um, you know clean water at breathable atmosphere food irrigation energy heat all that kind of stuff and um you know the asked Prince Charles like what they thought of my exhibit and he's like, you know, I do think that we should fix this planet first before going anywhere else. And I was just like, I've lost them. I've lost the kids. That's it. They're just going to, they're going to quote Prince Charles back at me and I'm not going to be able to make a comeback. But, um, you know, it, it kind of fit in with his like, big push on sustainability and kind of the protecting the environment. But uh, it was, you know, that that was kind of like a deer caught in the headlight moment as someone quite uh, important just suddenly drifted into your STEM <laughs> session. There was no seats involved, I can guarantee you. That's you, didn't sit, you didn't sit in your seat? No, or... no, he didn't. No, no. <laughs> um, so for the students like listening and um, like for myself, everyone likes an award. Um, but because you have so many and 
what do you recommend students and people who want to obviously get more recognized what what is the process do you think the best process is to kind of fulfill that because i know that when it comes to looking for awards online and stuff like that it's pretty difficult to find something that matches what you want it to kind of show off for yourself so what is you what was your strategy what did you want to do how do you recommend other people to do it I think there's two things that you can do in the long term and this kind of follows you. One is that have a mentor or a manager that will champion you as an individual. So it kind of, that's something that's really integral. They might not necessarily always be your line manager, uh, but essentially having someone that will champion your career and you as an individual and actually stop and say, no, actually they've done something that's, that's worthy of recognition and it should be recognized. It's rare but it's incredibly impactful on your uh, career going forward. And it can be academics, it can be tutors, it can be uh, you know mentors in industry, your line manager and work. Uh, but find an individual that will essentially champion you and champion your own career um, when you do things that are notable. The other one as well is that you can never wait for opportunity to land at your feet, is that you have to be proactive in seeking the opportunities that you want either now or for your future career. So for me is that, um, I never stand idle. It's that I, I realize if I want something definitively to happen, then I need to be the instigator. I need to be the person to go and push that forward, whether it's an award, whether it's a career change, whether it's um, an opportunity that I want to go and pursue. So I think it's the idea of self-empowerment, like you go and seek the change, go and find the opportunities. And, you know, you win some, you lose some, some will work, some won't, that's life. But, um, you know, if you're going to rely on anyone to really make an opportunity realise, then you have to rely on yourself. Do you have any awards that you recommend students should aim towards for yourself? For, like, as in, you uh, seemed quite experienced in it. Is there anything that you recommend yeah. for students to look out for? I think it's, you know, there's layers. So there's one is that your university, any wherever you may be in terms of school, college, university, there will be academic recognition and there will be award programs within your institution. So always be aware of them and be aware of the process. So it's how, what process do they follow? The next one is your institutions. So your institutions will have awards that you can apply for. And some of these awards are really practical. They're things that allow you to do stuff. So it's things like... Um, the IET has got postgraduate awards, it's got travel grants and awards. So again, if you go into a conference or if you're going to an event, then there's support there. So some of these awards are financial, you know, they, they support you to do things. And then the last one is actually look at industry awards. So like um, there'll be awards within, like for instance, in the energy sector with um, the different trade bodies and groups that exist. So yep, your own institution, whether it be school, college, university, layer up from that your institution so ultimately whether it be the IET I'm not sure if I'm allowed to mention see if I mention any other institute do I just get dubbed out from this point on <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you get redacted yeah, I think I can do beeps <laughs> redacted uh, so the IMECE the ICE the you know the ICME like these other institutions that uh, might be better aligned mm. to the work that you're doing and then finally kind of look at the sector awards so things that kind of um, cover the sector it's not necessarily an award, but it's something that all engineers kind of eventually work towards is chartership. And it's something where eventually chartership's the great leveler. It's the idea where regardless of what discipline or background you come through is that once you achieve chartership, then you've reached a minimum level of competence across um, a required um, 
a group of capabilities and that's something where regardless of what discipline you follow what sector you're in um, it kind of is the stamp of recognition from your peers and your institutions and that's a stepping stone to other career progression so whether it be to progress from into more senior roles other sectors uh, but especially for engineers that look towards traveling abroad or working overseas is the chartership is one of these internationally recognized accreditations that um, is transferable and um, so it's not necessarily an award but it's a big career milestone that engineers can pursue and it can take a while to get there but it's, um, it's worth it in the end this podcast is sponsored by silver fox the producers of the fox flow cable label this low smoke zero halogen label has been tested to the highest specifications to ensure its durability and reliability in a range of different environments to find out more or discuss a particular project, contact sales at silverfox.co.uk or call them on plus 44-01707-373727. Do you think that um, in terms of your process from like your start of your career and like your studying to where you are now, um, did you think it was a good route that you took or do you think that there's other routes that you can take? And for anyone listening, do you think that was the best route that you could take? And is there anything better, in your opinion, now you've done everything? It's a, well, uh, going to get introspective now. I'm like going to psychoanalyze my entire career. Did I do the right thing? I'm, I'm going to go back to law now. And go back <laughs> to suits. That's it. I'm going to, I'm going to immediately do that. I expect um, a LinkedIn change. Kind of 180. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's a fair point is that there is a real diverse routes um, and a, a diverse set of routes into engineering and one of the benefits having shared horizons for a number of years is you get to look at the advanced apprenticeships you get to look at traditional apprenticeships and um, degree route courses people who've came through college through into university and i think there's a there, you all end up within the sector you end up in very similar positions when you come out it's just that the route is suited to some people uh, you know some people want the the income from an apprenticeship and that hands-on experience alongside learning in which case that apprenticeship is a perfect route into um, you know going and starting your engineering career some of them want that degree at the end so the advanced apprenticeships start to look you know they, they meet that purpose and um, i find that you know regardless all engineering trainees are hungry for progression in the next step in their career so apprentices want to go and do maybe a postgrad or go and further develop and get more senior it's the same with the advanced apprenticeships. It's the same with fresh graduates. So I think looking back, having followed the graduate route, it was a great route. It worked for me. It allowed me to do things that um, I wouldn't change. You know, the opportunity to try different sectors over the course of my summers and the experience of, you know, trying a broader set of disciplines and subjects while you were in university. And then on the other side is that I can completely understand that, you know, it's you've got these other routes that are, again, great routes into engineering and they suit the individual circumstance or the individual route that they want to follow. So I think it's one of the things if you immediately look at a degree and going through as a student, you go, that's not for me, then I wouldn't necessarily just immediately discount engineering. I would start to look at the other options. And it's the same as that I wouldn't look at an apprenticeship. And if you don't think that that's the right thing for you, is that there are other options out there that can um, kind of work alongside either your personal circumstance or what you want to do um, later on in life. 
do you think graduate schemes are worthwhile over direct entries? Because I know a lot of people see grad schemes as fast, as almost management fast tracks. And because once you come out of the grad scheme, unless you're exceptional or the other end of it, you've got, you know, more or less where you'll get to by the time you retire. Um, I know plenty of organisations that have dedicated management graduate schemes and it's the idea where you go on a programme and you know, you've got a set, some people like that set progression, they like knowing that there's certain milestones that they'll pass and they'll get to a certain stage of their career after so many years. I think there is a need for humbleness in engineering and it is the idea where depending on the systems or the tools that you're applying, they can have a real safety impact in the real world. So sometimes doing it just from a management point of view is that management is a skill that you learn and it can either be more of an administrator or more of a leader. And it's very easy to teach administration because it's a process and it's kind of ticking of boxes. It's very hard to teach leadership and it's leadership ultimately that you need to be able to lead teams that are diverse, not only just in terms of background, but in terms of age. So, you know, I, I at the age of 27 was managing a team with chief engineers on it who were 20, 30 years my senior. That was a challenge for me as a young engineer to try and figure out how to get them on board rather than who's this little like young guy telling me what to do. Uh, and that's that's part of the journey. So I think it's, yes, grad schemes are uh, kind of worthwhile. But I think it's also a lot of people kind of put a lot of responsibility on their organisation to make the grad scheme be the best it can be. There's a lot of personal responsibility in that as well, is that um, if you want a grad scheme to really have the impact that you want, then you need to kind of help shape it or help direct it to where you need it to be. Um, for those that just kind of go into neutral and kind of just go through a grad scheme then they'll never get the full opportunity of it and normally come out the other end of it going well that wasn't really the best thing I could have done or I didn't really think that it delivered the the value that they promised at the beginning. That's interesting on we've, we've spoken a lot quite a lot over the last few podcasts about about leadership especially obviously in engineering how did you go about getting those chief engineers on side? It's one of these things where you need to respect experience. So you need to respect that they've been in the industry a long time. They know systems and plant more than you ever will. And that's something that you need to go in with an element of respect uh, to their seniority and to their knowledge and their experience. But if you respect them, then they will ultimately respect you as an individual. And I've always found that consultation, first and foremost, so asking people what they think, what they would do, and actually being an active listener, which is ironic because this is a podcast that I'm mostly talking in, but it's like, yeah. um, <laughs> there is a, there is a, one of the biggest skills as a leader that you can have is being an active listener and actually being able to listen to the individuals in the team that you're in and help their input to build the plan or the direction that you're going to take. Um, where I've seen most big change programs fail is that we, it's almost, it comes down like a diktat is that you're telling people what to do. And they've not really had the opportunity to shape it, understand it, or don't feel that they've had the opportunity to influence it. And as a leader, you can be a conduit for that. You can enable people to influence. You can enable people that their voice can be heard and it can be taken on board. But then at the end of the day, as a leader, you need to make the decision. And if you follow that kind of process of bringing people on board, then it's more likely that people will buy into the decision that you've made um, and the journey that you're kind of laying out in front of them. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of these things. Getting people on board is making sure you listen, making sure you understand, 
Um, you know, I think the funny thing about working with people who are older or uh, staff have been doing it for a longer period of time is like, I've seen it all before. Like they did this this thing in 1988 and it never worked. And then they tried in 2003. Uh, you know, it's like they've seen so much change, so many different leaders, managers and programs that, you know, there's there's a wealth for you to learn from in terms of where things have worked and where things haven't um, to try and be different from those that came before. Um, so out of curiosity then for students listening and um, for us ourselves, uh, in terms of your career at Atkins and where you are now, um, what kind of opportunities do these companies give to students? As in it, just to kind of promote the, those companies that you've worked for is there can you explain any like graduate opportunities if people want to if people looking for jobs right now it's it's like prime time because everyone's graduated everyone's looking for jobs is there anything that you could recommend to the people listening i think it's um understand understand the landscape that you're applying to so some people have a set passion like they know the sector they want to go and work for and that's great because it helps narrow down the thousands of engineering companies are uh, i think is our I'm going to completely misquote Engineering UK here, but there's, um, you know, over a hundred thousand engineering companies in the UK. So there's a huge field for you to choose from, and anything that you can do to try and narrow that into the sectors that you're really interested in, then that's a great starting point. So for me, I was lucky enough to be sponsored by Atkins, so that journey was prescriptive for me. But I kind of saw myself going into consultancy, and that narrowed it down to less than 10 companies in the UK realistically to apply to. So for me, that gave me a really good shortlist to focus my attention, focus my time on applying to. Um, you know, Atkins and SP Energy Networks, who I'm with just now, have, both have great apprenticeship programs and great graduate training programs. The one thing that I, I like about SP Energy Networks in contrast to Atkins, and it's, it's a good thing is that you can actually compare and contrast, is that for Atkins, you very much join the role that you will be in postgraduate scheme. So pending any, ch your, your traineeship is within the role that you will be doing after three years. Um, so you'll do secondments, you'll try different things, you'll um, have different training courses and experiences and opportunities, but you're kind of broadly within the role that you'll be doing three years later. As SP Energy Networks, what they tend to do is they tend to rotate you around the different teams and departments. So you actually get a real feel for the business. So you work with, uh, you know, the training center, you go and get experience of working in the field with electrical infrastructure and doing physical hands-on work with the electrical kit, all the way through to working with policy and regulation teams. Um, so you get a really diverse experience over the course of your grad scheme. And then at the end of the grad scheme, you apply for the role that you think you want to do in the long term. So really, you know, if you weren't lucky enough to get a summer placement or try different departments, then the graduate scheme in SP Energy Networks allows you to try all these different aspects of the business and then to try and figure out where you want to land. Um, so both of them um, opportunities, they tend to open around about um, August, September. They can be later in the year. I know the SP Energy Networks one opened about two months ago with a big range of trainee programs. So again, it's being prepared for when these schemes open, keeping an eye on them, being ready to apply and realizing that each company is slightly different. So uh, one of the things that is soul destroying as a manager is if you're reviewing 70 to 80 applications for one role, is that sometimes you get the, the CV that is specifically vague 
and it's the idea it's the CV that's designed to cater for like 12 companies across four different sectors and uh, you know it doesn't really say anything in any detail so I think when you apply for a company taking the time to make sure that your CV presents yourself in the best light within the context of the company and the sector you're applying to and the same goes for your cover letter and so I think it does take a good block of time to do a good application for an individual company and if you if you go for a smaller list and spend more time on the application then you'll have more positive outcomes um, as you go through it as some people do the scattergun approach and it's like you get a cv you get a cv everyone gets a cv and you know that the problem is is you're going up against some candidates that have maybe spent you know eight to ten hours on their single application into that um that company the last one and i guess it's more just a nod uh, towards um you know like silver fox is that there's a huge engineering industry that's on your doorstep and people tend to go for like the FTSE 100 immediately like they tend to go like oh, I know BP I know Rolls-Royce I know Airbus Connor <laughs> but it's um but you know they know these are big names that people like even if you don't work in the sector might recognize but there's actually some fantastic engineering opportunities that are on your doorstep local to your university local to your town and it's about making people aware of those opportunities is actually you don't need to look to the stock exchange to for your inspiration as the inspiration is normally a bit closer to home. Good advice. Just on just on the CVs, for most graduates, they'll come out with quite short CVs, I think it's fair to say. Do you think it's better to puff it out with irrelevant yep. work experience, like, oh, I was a barista at Costa? Or as a as a hiring manager, do you reckon it's better to just be more direct and even if you've only got a degree to make the most out of that i think when you when you present experience you present it within the context of the transferable skills that you're trying to highlight so don't discount any experience like if you worked as a barista over the course of like as a part-time job you're managing studying plus doing a job you're being trusted with customer service you're being trusted with uh, money on a day-to-day basis and it can, you can highlight time management, learning new skills, working in a high pressure environment. You know, that's just the example of me deconstructing that barista job, but there's a lot of transferable skills within that. So, you know, yes, like if you've got the experience, then highlight it, but you want to put more emphasis on the experience that's readily applicable. So if you've got an engineering placement, then talk about that. If you've got experience within this sector, maybe if you, even if you did your dissertation, on something that's applicable and um, we'll have to dig out your uh, smart meter dissertation alex i'll have a look at that later yeah uh, i'll send it to you after <laughs> but you know for that's the immediately transferable experience for the sectors that you're looking at as on the other side is about understanding those transferable skills and what you're trying to tell the employer is it you know can you be trusted with management can you be trusted with responsibility will you do your work diligently on on time and can you manage multiple demands on your time at the uh, whether that be studying and trying to kind of pay for uh, to live essentially at the same time so you know any experience that you have will be worthwhile in one shape or another um, and I don't believe in discounting any experience even if it is a little part-time job um, I don't believe that people should kind of talk that down you know there's millions of people in this country that do multiples of those part-time jobs just to kind of put food on the table and yeah. they've got some great skills, some great opportunities that come from it. So I think it's never kind of talk yourself down in terms of the experience that you have. Always try to talk it up and present it in a way that allows them to understand how does that experience apply 
to the job that you're uh, you're looking to get. Great. Yeah, lovely. <laughs> Especially for me as in a student and stuff like that, when we used to apply for jobs, like I know that people listening who are applying, that's really useful information to a lot of people because you tend to be kind of in the dark unless you seek out help. And so most people, like for my first year, my first year at uni, I thought I could do it by myself and I was like, oh, I'll put it in and I wasn't really getting anywhere. And then I went to careers advice and I did it that way and it worked out really well. I think the way that you present information is really important as well is that the if it, no one's ever taught you the STAR approach, I still use it in terms of doing industry responses, but it's like, what is the situation? What is the task? What is the action and what is the result? So ultimately, what were you asked to do? Like, or what's the context of what you're doing? So that's the situation. The task is what you're asked to do. The action is what did you do? And the thing that most people forget is actually what was the outcome? So it's kind of like um, getting to the end of a, like a TV series and getting a cliffhanger is that a lot of the time you get this, like people talking about their engineering career and they're like, right, they're doing something really interesting. Mm. What happened? Like, did it work? <laughs> yeah. How did it end? You know, it's one of these things that, um, you know, talking about the conclusion of what you've done is really important as well. It's like, you know, did it work? Did it not? If it never worked, what did you learn? And it's... Yeah, I think I, I think in the context of engineering, it's really important that failure doesn't matter necessarily. Just because it doesn't work. Doesn't exactly. Mean you shouldn't think, talk about it. Yeah. It means you learn. I think failure definitely does matter, Alex. And I think it's one of these things when you're in infrastructure, and if infrastructure fails, then it can be really quite bad. But learning through failure is something that you need to embrace. And the idea being is that you know you shouldn't make a habit of it. So it's the the good idea is that some people use failure as a safety blanket. It's like ah, oh, it's fine. I'll fail and I'll learn. And it's great to try and fail and then take the learning from it. Um, but the trick is not necessarily to make a habit from it because you hopefully as you learn from successive failures then your failure rate should reduce as you go on um, but as one of these things where yes from an engineering point of view especially within that training program training stages and that learning stage is that you have to embrace and uh, you have to fail quick as they say as uh, and then kind of get back on the horse and kind of try again mark you're a stem ambassador We've had lots of, as I'm sure you can imagine, lots of STEM ambassadors on this podcast. Um, but what do you do? What's your favourite bit about it? I think the thing for me is that I like doing kind of like the eureka moments. So like you're talking to an audience and suddenly everyone kind of goes like, oh, right, I understand how that works. I've connected dots. But the thing for me with STEM is the conversations that take place afterwards. So you've done an event or you're talking on a one-to-one -one basis with like a student and their family or the student and you're having just a heart-to-heart -heart around you know like I like sci I like science I like mathematics I want to make a difference I want the work that I do to have an impact and just being able to actually just do that soft guidance and go you there's these opportunities in front of you and it's you know from a engineers are one of the most trusted professions in the UK and it ends up to the title being used quite extensively um but it's, you know, we've got a huge amount of societal trust in the work that we do, and it, it kind of recognises the reliance that society has. Um, you know, in tribute to Prince Philip, I think, um, he, I'm going to butcher a quote from him, but, you know, he said that everything that wasn't made by God was made by an engineer. And it's that kind of, just pinning that down, that kind of societal importance to the work that you do, 
And you find that a lot of people, like when they go for awards, medicine, when they lend, lend themselves towards kind of veteran science dentistry, is, is that impact on a one-to-one -one basis? And it's like trying to put into context, engineering can have that impact on a community, on a city, on a country, and it can have that real um, impact on the well-being of individuals. So I think from a STEM point of view, it's the, the events are quite good fun. I do enjoy them. I'm a bit of a troublemaker. I like to kind of wind people up and do different things. But uh, the other side of it is the one-to-one -one conversations that happen afterwards. And it's knowing that your intervention, however small, might have just planted the seed for someone to actually go and do a bit more learning, to go and look at a bit more detail in what they could potentially do. And we do need more engineers from all walks of life um, to kind of address the skill shortage and to... Um, you know, build back better as, uh, yeah, I just quoted a Boris Johnson initiative on a podcast. There we go. Uh, but, you know, there's an, an initiative that we do need um, engineers. We need more engineers from every walks of life. So Yeah, fantastic. Mark, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate you coming on. You've been absolutely fantastic, especially when it comes to like the CV advice and stuff like that. We haven't had that on this podcast yet. And I feel like a lot of people will really value that information and i think people will take it on uh very to heart so um and all your nice quips and stuff that was really fun too so i really i think me and alex really appreciated it and it was really entertaining so thank you so much you're most welcome thanks guys i've really uh, enjoyed taking some time to uh, talk about my career and i guess just to anyone listening um, all the best for the next stages whatever you may choose thanks for listening to this episode of the engineering stories podcast we hope it's given you some insight into another area of engineering. If you're still here at this point, we must be doing something right. So stay tuned for the next guest. And in the meantime, share this episode with your friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe.